Hi, I'm Alison. I'm from 7pm Kirribilli. Today I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 15 verses 7 to 31. It's on page 271. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is the king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Kerathites and Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday and today, shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I am going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, whether my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it 
and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Abiyamaz with you, and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Good morning. Great to be with you, and I'd love to pray to God as we look at this together. So let's pray. Father in heaven, as we gather here this morning, we long to hear your voice. Please speak to us by your word. Please transform us by your spirit. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Tolstoy began one of his most famous novels with these words. He said, All happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And you could basically say that for David and his family in this section of 2 Samuel. From chapters 13 through to 17, David and his family are very unhappy. Not only that, they're unholy. And there are lots of horrible parts in the Bible, but I think these sections here, we haven't read all of it, but this few chapters are among the most horrible in the whole Bible. As we come to this devastating part of David's story, we might want to ask this morning, and you might want to ask, it's raining outside, why are we looking at this section of the Bible today. What are we going to get out of this today? And I want to say that I actually really appreciate that the Bible doesn't sit in some sort of lofty position far away from where we live our lives. It's not like God lives in some distant galaxy unconcerned with what is happening here in this world and the mess of our world. No, God is intimately involved in what's happening in our world. Recently for church, we've just printed some welcome brochures and uh, they look great and we look great in them. Uh, People are smiling, it looks welcoming, it's happy. But let me say if you were to print brochures for this time in David's kingdom, people's faces would be puffy from crying, people would look disheveled from not having slept People would be weeping and traumatised. And the Bible very clearly shows us that God is involved in the mess of the world and our lives. Whether it's sin that's been done to you or sin that you have done or participated in, 
It's so important to know that the Bible is not primarily an instruction manual of rules to follow, nor is it even a list of people to emulate. The Bible is the story of God reconciling this broken world back to him and doing what is necessary for that to happen. And to be honest, most Bible characters, and certainly some of the ones we meet in this section, are not people who would fit neatly into a squeaky clean image. Uh, They wouldn't neatly fit into a happy, middle-class, nuclear family environment. Many of them have lives that are extremely broken, just like us, facing the very real consequences of mistakes that they have made and that other people have made. So what's the context of today's passage? Well, last week we saw that David, the king of Israel, slept with this woman Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered. And today we see how David's mistakes have tainted his own family line. They become a divided family, a violent family, both sexually violent and physically violent. And here we also have the fulfilment of God's word to David and his family, a word of judgment. So I've got four points for us today. And the first one is that the consequences of sin are real. Consequences of sin are real. It's likely that if you've ever done something against God's will, you're already aware of that. You know that sin has consequences. And sometimes sin has natural consequences So if you start lying to people, they're not going to trust you as much. But also the Bible tells us that there are consequences that come as God's discipline, God's judgment because of specific sins. And we don't always know in our own lives what God's intentions are with what is happening. But David was told. And in chapter 12, verse 11, God speaks to David through Nathan the prophet. We read this last week about the consequences for his sin. Chapter 12, verse 11, Nathan said, This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before Israel. Then David's family, evil things are about to start happening. And those evil things will be the wicked and inexcusable mistakes of people which God will not let them off the hook for. But at the same time, God will use these to bring judgment on David. This is the awful result of David's awful sins. One of the ways that God shows his wrath in his word is that he gives people over to their heart's desires. It's actually a terrifying and awful thing. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Imagine an L-plater, a young driver trying to learn how to drive, and they say to their parents, I don't want you involved anymore. You're too restrictive, and you keep telling me what to do, and 
Uh, you keep trying to put input into how I'm supposed to drive the car. I'm, just, I'm not interested in having you in the car with me. And so the parent says, okay, you take it. Go for it. It's not going to go well. We often don't know what is good for us and for others, do we? Take the desires of our hearts. How do we know which ones to follow and which ones to suppress? Sometimes things that feel so good are so damaging to others and so damaging to us. Right now, in our world, I'd say there's an idea that society has kind of progressed, that we've come to a new level. And maybe that's true in some areas. Maybe we have come to a new level in, in medicine and science and research. But what about our morality? Have we come to a new level in how we live our lives? Seems to me that uh, our communities are more in the grip of things than ever or just as in the grip of things as ever we have been. Family violence, pornography, other destructive behaviours. God steps back from David and his family and he says, if you want life without me, this is what it looks like. And so that's what unfolds in these chapters before us. So let me give the summary of what happens from chapters 13 through to 17. In chapter 13, David's daughter Tamar is raped by David's son Amnon. David's brother, uh, sorry, Tamar's brother, David's other son Absalom, is angry at what has happened. And we're told David's angry as well. But neither of them does anything. Two years later, Absalom kills Amnon for, in revenge for what he's done. David hears about it. Uh, he tears his clothes. He weeps. And then Absalom flees from Jerusalem. Then in chapter 14, David brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. And then we come to chapter 15, which we've read, and Absalom now stands at the city gate. He's kissing people. He's sucking up to them. He's saying, if only uh, I was the judge in Israel, I could help you out with all your problems. And so he wins over the hearts of people. He's like a snake in the grass and he steals their hearts and he gets ready to stage a coup against his father and his kingdom. So in chapter 15, verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. So David and his allies now flee the city. And in chapter 16, Absalom is in Jerusalem trying to be the next king of Israel. And he's getting awful advice. And he does terrible things. First of all, he pitches a tent on the rooftop of the palace and, as God said would happen, he sleeps with David's concubines in full view of everyone. And then under the terrible advice of Hushai, this man that David sends back, Absalom lines up in battle against David and his famously thick hair gets caught in a, at the branches of a tree and while he's hanging there, Joab, the commander of the troops, comes and kills him. This is the real and awful and messy and evil and wicked world. This is the world straining under the judgment of God. 
And it's the exact same world that we live in. Now, please be aware that people are responsible to God in the end. He is the judge, the just judge of the whole world. And no one gets off the hook with God. God doesn't just choose not to see some things. God's eyes see into the motives of every heart and everyone will stand before his judgment throne on the final day. But also be aware that if your life is broken, that the Bible is the book for you. What what do we need in our mistakes, in our sin? in the darkness of our own hearts, what do we need? We don't need excuses or band-aid solutions or to pat ourselves on the back and say, let's just keep progressing. We need honest words from our creator spoken into the chaos and the evil of our lives and our world. So what does David do? What can David do? Well, the second thing we see in this chapter is that he trusts God. He's the trusting king. You may find that uh, you're dealing with the consequences of sin at the moment, like David, whether because of your mistakes or someone else's mistakes. And just like him, we need to trust God's provision. In chapter 15, we have this dramatic march of David and all his allies out of Jerusalem and lots and lots of people uh, going out of the city with him. He's fleeing for his life and As uh, he does so, Absalom is taking over in Jerusalem. And as an aside, uh, self-protection is a good thing. I was reading uh, the old Heidelberg Catechism this week, as you do, just in my (laughs) quiet time. And part of it um, applies the sixth commandment, do not murder, and, and kind of thinks about how does that apply in our lives, and obviously it means don't kill someone, but it also means, they say, uh, uh, that I'm not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Self-protection is a good thing. David flees, he's doing the right thing. He's protecting the God-given life that he has. Uh, We see it in the book of Acts as well, Christians flee persecution. God doesn't begrudge them for that. Uh, If you need to get to a place of safety, To get out of the the way of danger, God would commend you for that. It's a wise and godly thing. At the edge of the city, David stops and he addresses people as they start walking past him. First, there's this man called Ittai, who is a foreigner uh, in Israel. And he insists that he wants to follow David. David says, don't worry about it. Stay back here. You don't need the trouble. He insists. David says, come with me. A little bit further along, at the edge of the wilderness, David meets this man Zadok, who is a priest, and the other Levites with him. They're carrying the ark. And read with me in chapter 15, verse 25. Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it as his dwelling place and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. So God provides for all his people. God provides for the righteous and the unrighteous with rain on the land. God ultimately provides for his kingdom. And David knows this. 
and he trusts it and he just throws himself on the mercy and the providence of God here. He knows he can't change his mistakes. He's repented of them, but he cannot change them. He knows he can't change his son's mistakes. He can't make everything right. And so he trusts that God will provide. And he prays a very specific prayer in verse 31. Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Ahithophel was a counsellor to David and now he's gone back and he's trying to counsel Absalom, the new king. And David prays against his advice. Very specific prayer. There is a liberation in trusting God's provision. To know that uh, God provides for the past, the present, the future, it's comforting when you think he's working this all out for his good and for the good of his people and his name. It strengthens us. When we say it doesn't all depend on me and what I can do here, it's actually a good way to think. The fact that God sovereignly provides is especially good to remember if you are going through a trial, if you are suffering. And you say to yourself, I can't control the outcome of this. I'm not called to. It's in God's hands. It's actually a great way to to be when you've made mistakes as well. And you confess and own up to those mistakes and then you say, God has brought me into existence and I didn't have a say in that. And God has numbered the days of my life and he knows when I'll die and he's going to do what's right. It's actually a comforting way to live. It's even comforting when someone else in your life is in trouble and you can say, I don't know what's happening here. But God does. And God knows how this will end and God knows what he's doing. David didn't see the ark of God as his personal possession that he could just take with him wherever he wanted to go. He sent it back to the city and he said, God's kingdom, God's will, God's plan, God's presence will stay there. And if God wants, he can take me back to the city. And if not, then so be it. I love uh, Psalm 131. It's this tiny little psalm which David prays about trusting God. And the picture that he uses is of a child or a baby in its mother's arms as a picture of trusting God. I do not concern myself with matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Now, there are lots of people that want to predict the future, economists, journalists, pastors maybe, but where does the future reside? It doesn't reside with people but with God. And David knows that and so he throws himself on the mercy and provision of God. He's the trusting king, but also point three today, he's the active king. This is the other side of what David does here. 
He's barefoot, he's weeping, he's walking up the Mount of Olives. He's surrounded by a crowd of people around him who are weeping as well. And as he gets to the top of the mountain, he makes a decision, verse 32, when David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, Your majesty, I will be your servant, as I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant, then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. So David prays against Ahithophel's advice, and then he takes action by sending Hushai to be a spoke in the wheel, so to speak. Now let's be careful here. This is not saying if you have an enemy, you can just pray against them and send people to interrupt their lives. That would be a bad application. David is in a unique situation. He's the king of Israel, chosen by God, anointed to be on the throne. He was well within his rights to interrupt this coup by his son. But there's a general principle here for us, and that is that we trust God, we rely on his provision, and we take action. We do both. It's interesting, isn't it? David had no word from God about this. He didn't know if he was going to die or live. He did have a word from God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about the future of his kingdom and his line, but now he doesn't know what's going to happen. And it's similar for us. God might give you a clear sense of the future. He might put someone in your life who gives you amazing insight and advice or wisdom or a word from God. He, he, might, uh, he might give you a direct prayer in answer for guidance, but sometimes not. Sometimes you just need to know God is sovereign, I'll pray to him, and I generally know what he wants, and then I just need to take some wise action. Heard this week about a Christian university lecturer in Sydney who ends her lectures by putting up a slide inviting people to the Explore course at her church. There's someone taking action. <laughs> David broadly knew God's plan. He didn't know what was coming next, but he knew God had promised to bless his family, and so he just did something. And in the Bible, we, we do know the will of God, broadly speaking. We know he wants us to show the fruit of the Spirit, to trust in Christ, to love our neighbour, to do good to all, especially the household of faith, to show the uh, love to people, hospitality, to make disciples, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, to speak the truth in love, to avoid ungodliness, put off the old life, put on the new life. We broadly know what God wants us to do, just as David broadly knew what God's plan was. And so we can pray, we can trust, and we can take action. And we trust that the Holy Spirit in all of this will use us in our imperfect decision-making and in our imperfect efforts to do what God would have us do. Some people fall into a kind of passive quietism, you know, all prayer, no action. And some people fall into this active non-trust of God, where it's all activity and no thought of God, we, we need both. 
need prayer and action. And the guarantee from God is that he protects his promise. He protects his promise. That's the fourth thing today. See, what would have happened if David had died and if his sons had died and the kingdom kind of just fizzles out? What would have happened to the promise that God made to him that on David's throne would be the everlasting king and the everlasting kingdom? Well, that didn't happen because God protects his promise. After the war was done, God brings David and his allies back into Jerusalem. David wins back the hearts of Israel just as Absalom had won them and God vindicates him. God takes him back and puts him on the throne. Chapter 19, verse 14, He won over the hearts of the men of Judah so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, Return, you and your men. God protects his promise and he protects his king. And through his king, he protects his people. And coming forward by 1,000 years, David's son, Jesus, completed his ministry in Jerusalem. And how did the last days of his ministry in Jerusalem end? It was full of tears and rejection and shame, just like David's. He also walked up the Mount of Olives in disgrace and in shame, out of the city. And he trusted God. And he took action. But unlike David, who took this journey because of his sin, the Lord Jesus took this journey because of our sin. And just as God re-established David's kingdom, God re-established the kingdom of Jesus, his eternal king, as he raised him from the dead. And Romans chapter 6, verse 5 says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. God protects his king David and his promise and his people. And today God has protected his Christ and his promise and his church. About 10 years ago I was on a plane to Africa and we just hit this period of turbulence for a couple of hours. The person behind me was throwing up into a bag for an hour and my stomach was in my mouth and the pilot protected the plane and he protected us who were in the plane. You know, if Jesus had stayed dead, it would have been no help to anyone. But God protects him. And by protecting him, he protects his promise and he raised him to life so that in him we might be protected, we might be safe. And so we can trust God. We can take action in the light of his will for us. Because the future for us is secure. We're now going to pray a prayer of confession as we prepare ourselves for communion after the song. And the words are coming up on the screen. So I'll invite you to share in these words, turning our hearts to God in our sin and reminding ourselves of his grace. Let's say these words. Gracious God,
Our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open us to a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. O King enthroned on high, filling the earth with your glory, holy is your name, Lord God Almighty. In our sinfulness, we cry to you to take away our guilt and to cleanse our lips to speak your word through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.